Ladies and gentlemen, now hosting the Rizzo cast, put your hands together for Steven Risotto. What is happening, everybody? And welcome. This is episode number 111 of Rizzo cast. I'm Steven Risotto. And today we are joined by a beyond special guest. He is a special assistant to baseball operations for the San Francisco Giants. He's been in the organization for north of 30 years, probably around 35 years now. He's been a coach. You know him more as the bench coach, the third base coach of the three-time World Series champion San Francisco Giants. It is Ron Wotus, and Woe joins the show. Well, how are you doing? Welcome. Thanks, Riz. It's good to be with you today. Uh, so, I mean, we see you occasionally. You're on the field all the time. We'll get into kind of what you're doing with the Giants in just a second. But I think a lot of people, a lot of fans have seen you recently. You've been on TV a little bit, and you, you've kind of been uh, flexing your muscles with the commentary stuff. So what is that like? I mean, it's kind of something new for you. I know you're not doing every series, every game, but just kind of stepping into new territory. How did that go? Yeah, it's uh, it, it's been interesting. Um, it's been a lot of fun. It's it's a little bit like work for me. I don't want to lose my day job because I love being on the field, working with players and uh, try, <clears throat> trying to get them better and helping the organization that way. But it's something that uh, I've been uh, asked to do over the years. And I decided to dip my toe in and see if it's something uh, for me or not. So I contracted 12 games this season. And uh, I've done nine at this point. So I have three more coming up with the uh, San Diego Padres when we play them on the road. Yeah. And, and I, when I talked to Bill Lasky about doing TV, he mentioned that, you know, when he showed up to his first pre pre and post game show, they automatically sent him to the makeup room and he was like, I don't need makeup. I look fine. And I guess it's kind of a reality check. Like, yeah, you're going on TV, you know, you do need makeup. So is that kind of like your experience with it? They pushed you into the makeup chair. Well, I've been fortunate, you know, I, I didn't need makeup. I don't know why. Maybe they cut the makeup, makeup out, but uh, it's been fun. Look, I, I love baseball. I love talking about baseball. So it gives me an opportunity to do that uh, with another platform. So it's been enjoyable and, and we'll see what happens going forward with it. But fortunately for me, the makeup is out. My biggest problem is getting the earpiece in and having all those wires connected to you when you're moving around and finding the right camera, but I'll get the hang of it eventually. Yeah. It's a little bit of a different feel from a fungo I'd imagine. Yes, so. yes exactly. <laughs> there you go. Um, and something coming up at the ballpark uh, this weekend, Will Clark is getting his number 22 retired. And uh, of course it's a big event. He's waited a few years for it. Now it's been delayed from COVID. Uh, but Will's kind of in and out. He's been in and out uh, the dugout of, you know, kind of the coaching staff, he's the, the last few years, I guess, the last decade, he's been kind of a special assistant and we've seen him. Uh, so what are kind of your memories uh, about being around Will and maybe uh, some memories that you have of maybe him as a player and him as, as a colleague as well, working with the coaching staff? Well, I first remember Will back uh, years ago when I was playing AAA ball and uh, I didn't go to major league camp as a triple A AAA player for the Giants, but I got called over a few games and you know, Will was always uh, extremely nice, uh, always went out of his way to say hello to everybody. So that's when I first met Will. And then since I've been coaching and Mel's been, uh, Will's been a special assistant, um, he's been a great ally, a great friend, and, and, and a great mentor in a lot of ways. I mean, 
we get Brandon Belt out there. I'd always invite Will out. I loved it when he was in town years ago, and I still love it. Of course, I'm not in charge of the infield anymore, and he still comes around. But I use Will a lot, and um, he's very respectful. Um, he's there to help. He's very passionate about baseball. So I consider Will a good friend, and um, I'm excited about uh, the retirement. This is a big deal. I mean, how many numbers are retired in your lifetime? Right in mine, we see we saw Bonds uh, have this honor, uh, but Will Clark is going to have this honor, and, and it's so fitting. Um, you know, one of the great players of the Giant organization. I'm so happy that he's still around. Uh, I know he's a fan favorite, and I love having him around. You know, he's got an old school feel. He knows a lot about hitting. He's a tremendous hitter, and he was a, a tremendous first baseman in. And baseball, man, I mean, he knows the game. It's just not hitting. He understands the game, and he has a lot of great things to offer to our players and to myself. Yeah, and, and Will, a, a Gold Glove Award winner at, at first base, of course, and uh, a good defensive first baseman along with all, the obvious hit tool as well. Um, and and you, speaking of infield defense, you've seen some really good infield defense during your time with the Giants, um, and, and there's been a little bit of a hiccup this year. We don't have to go too far into that, uh, but at, at one point, did you start mastering kind of the art of, of teaching what you learned? Because I know it's, it's really tough. There's so many facets to, to teaching infield defense. What point did you kind of pick it up and feel like you've mastered it? Well, I really started, you know, back when I was a triple A player and I kept watching the Greg Lintons and all these guys going to the big leagues and I was stuck in triple A. I mean, I went to the big leagues as when I was 21 with the pirates, but then I played, you know, a year and three quarters with the giants in triple A and you start to realize, you know, that you're not going to get the opportunity again. And I, I started honing my craft there, really, you know, picking brains of other players and knowing I played all the positions, all the infield positions. I played left field. I played right field. So I had an experience with all the positions and moving around the diamond. Uh, but really where I cut my teeth was as a minor league manager, you know, spending eight years managing in the minor leagues. It's a lot easier to learn your craft in the minor leagues. You can try things with a player and learn what works, what doesn't. At the major league level, when you approach a player and ask him to make a correction, you darn sure better be able to help them and make sure it's the right thing because they have to go out and perform. And if it doesn't help them, you're going to lose a lot of credibility uh, in what you're doing. So for me, it was the experiences in the minor leagues that really put me on my way. And then it's just learning to deal with you know, the major league player, um, the different attitudes, the different personalities, you know, know when to approach them, when not to approach them, because they have a lot of pressure on themselves. You know, if they're struggling hitting, I'm not going to compound it trying to get them to uh, improve their backhand if they're in a slump hitting. So timing is very important, but that's really, you know, where I started learning my craft was in the minor leagues. Yeah, I was going to ask about some of the different personalities that you might run into. Um, you know, I always think about, you know, what do you do with, you know, when a guy like Evan Longoria comes to town and, you know, the Giants trade for a guy like Longoria, who's a noted all-star caliber, you know, third baseman, uh, even Omar Vizquel, who's very well known to be a great defender when the Giants acquired him. Do you kind of like, is there more of like a, you know, leave them alone type of thing? Is it, you know, are, are they, are they willing to listen to you? What is kind of the, the, the way, I guess, maybe the rules of the road for, for a veteran infielder when they come? 
Well, first of all, I have the utmost respect for these veteran players that have done it. You mentioned Longoria and Omar Vizquel, two great defensive players. So the first thing is I try to understand them and find out what they like to do. I pick their brain a little bit. What's your routine? How do you like to prepare, et cetera, et cetera, and build a relationship with them and, and let them understand that I'm there for them and make sure that they trust that I'm there to help them. You know, I, I remember when I was a young infield coach and Jeff Kent, you know, I was like my second year and, you know, he was having a couple issues defensively, made some errors. And, you know, if you try to attack it too quick, too soon without a relationship, it doesn't go very well. You know, guys can be stubborn. Um, you mentioned these players are making millions of dollars for a reason. So that's the first thing is a relationship. Try to establish some trust and then you chip away and, and try to help them. Look, you mentioned two guys that didn't need an awful lot of help, but there's a lot of things that come up a way he makes a particular play. Most of your conversations are when they are making errors or, or things aren't going right. You may have some advice for them. You may tweak the routine a little bit. You may ask them to try something different. And I think that's, you know, a word that I use a lot is, Hey, try this, see how this feels to you, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the gist of it. And, and one of the, the most impressive transformations that I've seen is, is for me, it's, it's in recent history in Giants land. It's Joe Panic, And Joe Panic was a guy who's drafted as a college shortstop and then made the transition in the minor leagues to second base. And he's maybe not the most athletic guy in the world, and, uh, but he was still able to be made into a, a very good defensive player at second base, won a gold glove, of course. What kind of work did you, because, you know, Joe was a guy that, would always go to his right and go to his left really well. I think he, he made some unbelievable plays. We always think of the world series play um, and then going to his left, you know, making that, that sliding play in shallow right field and throwing from the seat of his pants. I always remember him doing that. And I always remember uh, Emmanuel Burris doing that for some reason. He's always the one that comes to mind. Yeah. So what kind of went into the transformation to make Joe panic? And I guess Brandon Crawford for that, for that, uh, I guess, the connection with that double play duo. What kind of made them two special on the baseball field? Because we know about Crawford, but Panic is a little bit different because he had to maybe work a little bit harder defensively. Yeah, well, you mentioned two guys that when you have, you know, uh, pupils with their ability, it makes your job really, really easy. Um, but going back to Joe Panic for a second, you know, I'd have to credit, you know, Fred Stanley and Jose Aguasil in the minor leagues. He made the transition from being a shortstop to second base. And um, so he had a little experience at second base when we got him. But, you know, really the one big thing that, uh, you know, I kind of helped Joe with, I think, is when he came up, he always wanted to come across the bag on a double play, you know, step across and throw. And, you know, the easiest way for me to turn the double play is to stay on the bag and just get your feet up and down and turn it there. You know, if the throw is up the line, you have to come across. If the throw is off the bag, you have to step to it. But if it's a good throw, you stay right there. And, um, you know, Joe picked that up. He liked it. He became one of the best in the game at, at turning the double play. And he still had that in his back pocket coming across when he needed to. But there's no need to do it all the time. And then from there, I think it's just footwork. You know, Joe, uh, and whether it's craw or belt, I believe your feet are the ones that your feet get you in position the field. So we always try to keep the feet active. That's one thing Craw does extremely well. You watch him take ground balls now. He doesn't wait on the ball. He comes and gets it. He plays the hop. He picks the hop. 
a lot of players in the game will just lay back on the ball, let the ball come to you, and really not doing it game-like. So the feet were important. We worked real hard with Joe on that. And just a lot of reps, a lot of early work. And then once he has it, he has it. And uh, to your last point of what made them so special is one thing that we did with them is our routine was craw and, and panic hit in the same group. And a lot of times these guys don't hit in the same group anymore, but I made sure I talked to the hitting coaches. I wanted them in the same group so they can take their ground balls together. So, you know, panic would take balls, throw the first, craw would take them, throw the first, and we turn double plays. 10 every day, craw would throw to panic, panic would throw to craw, and that's how you nurture uh, that awareness and in, in, in that bond that they have together. And we did that their whole career. And uh, it's something some infield coaches do, but I thought it really benefited us as a unit. And then moving on here, I mean, you, you're not only a bench coach and not only a defensive uh, encyclopedia, but you also got your feet wet with base coaching throughout your career. I mean, you, know, you were third base coach early on, and then you finished off as third base coach. Um, when you're looking at an outfielder's arm, because I know that's the first thing they tell you when you get on base as a, as a young player is check your outfielders. And I'm sure you probably have to, the, to do the same thing, but maybe a, a deeper extent, uh, some pregame stuff that you might have to get into. Because whenever you look at a guy that has a good arm and, you know, us as fans, we kind of normally go to outfield assists to judge, you know, but I guess outfield assists is kind of an arbitrary number because maybe that's the fault of the base runner per se. So you might have to look at some other different numbers to, to get the extent uh, of an outfielder's arm. What do you have to dive into to, to know that information? When I first started, of course, there were, you know, there wasn't a lot of video. I remember being at Candlestick, you know, I first, I coached there my first year and you're on the VHS tape, but we taped the game, you know, of the Dodgers and say, we got Mondesi out there and you're rewinding the tape, trying to watch his throws, you know, it's a tedious process. So you really couldn't get uh, a lot of looks on video like you wanted to. Today, you get every look you possibly want, um, but Going back to years ago, it was always the advanced scouts that that I trusted. You know, we had advanced scouts in the park. We usually had two advanced scouts. And um, if our advanced scout uh, didn't see the guy make any throws, you know, I would go to our uh, pro scouts that may have seen people that I trust. Just if you ask five different people their opinion on somebody's arm, you get, might get five different answers. So you learn to trust certain people over the years and, and that's what you go with. The other thing is we go out and watch infield. I, you know, as a th young third base coach, I, and of course, they don't do that anymore, but I'd watch them throw in pregame. In the big leagues, it's pretty easy because everybody has a reputation. Your advanced scouts usually have seen them at some point in time. But you want to be current because guys are throwing well at some point. Sometimes they have a sore arm. So that's where I like the scouts. Today, it's done on video. They'll give you the stat cast arm strength which I'm not a fan of because um, it, it doesn't really play well in how they're throwing. They may not throw the ball hard all the time. You may see one great, a couple great throws and uh, you don't know their accuracy. You don't know if the player charges the ball, whether he lays back on it, whether he throws better, uh, you know, with momentum or if he goes right or left. So it gets pretty involved, Riz. You asked Flannery, you asked Mark Halberg, we spent a lot of time in today's game looking at video and their throws. And of course, you know, I have my own program on my computer that puts their arm strengths in and, and the notes, if they're better left, right, et cetera, et cetera. 
but you're always watching their throws and seeing where they're at um, throughout the course of the season. Yeah, and I could see how the the exit or the not exit velocity, but the velocity from the outfield could be a little bit different, especially since a guy could you know throw a ball to home plate 98 miles an hour in April, and then come September he might have you know dealt with like a shoulder injury from you know the time as the time eclipse. But do you, do you ever feel like a base runner when you're out there you know running down the line? I know Flannery used to really run down the line. Maybe you did it just a little bit. Did you ever feel like you were more part of the game outside than maybe inside the dugout? Well, I tried to wear spikes one time like Flan, and I pulled my calf in, in <laughs> Pittsburgh. It was raining, so I, I didn't do that anymore. You know, Flan was notorious for the spikes. Um, I wasn't as animated as him, but to your point, I loved coaching third. You know, I had been a co- bench coach for 19 years, and talking to Bobby, Ivan, Bobby Evans, we made changes on the staff. I told him, I'd welcome coaching third base as well. I, I would be fine with that. It was a nice change for me after 19 years in the dugout um, because it is the closest you get to playing the game is going out and coaching third. You have a direct impact on the decisions in the game. And I thoroughly enjoy the competition of that. So it was like playing and, um, um, and, and very, very enjoyable. And you get to you get to really interact with the players on the bases. I, I never, you know, considered myself a base running coach, but you know, if you're coaching the bases, there's certain certain things you expect players to do, how they round the base when they come around third, picking up your your signals, whether you're gonna score them or not, their secondary leads. If they don't get a good secondary lead at second, I can't score them. So I really enjoyed becoming a base running coach uh, while I was coaching third base and trying to be as good as we possibly could at those items. And did you feel like you were a top notch? Cause you got to have some, some, a little bit of a style when you're, when you're relaying signs to the plate, did you feel like you had a little bit of that? Yeah, I think so. The one thing I tried to do was, is, you know, I talked a lot to Joey Malfitano. He helped me a ton. Uh, Herman Franks, the old manager for the giants. He told me something when I first got started in 1998, Ron Paranowski brought him over to me and he, and he told me, he said, hey, look, take charge of the position. And that's the one thing that stuck with me. I always expected the players to look at me. I always wanted to be energetic at third base. You know, if they're not looking, I would holler at them. I wanted to give the signs with some energy. So when they look down there, they don't fall asleep. And that's how I tried to coach third. I hope it came across that way. Uh, I tried to pretend I was actually playing in the game, take charge of the position and be energetic. Cause I think any player that has energy, a coach as well, it rubs off on the players and, and everybody can sense that. Minus the spikes, right? Minus the spikes. Thank you. I yes. don't have big calves, but they, they still can be pulled when they're little. In Pittsburgh, nonetheless. And you know, some people in Pittsburgh. So, I mean, that, that might be a little bit of a, of a gaffe there. But um, speaking of Pittsburgh, uh, let's get into Ron Wotus, the player, because this is something that maybe we don't really know much about. Uh, I guess casual people, maybe Giants fans don't really know the extent of your playing career, but you were six for 12 in the big leagues uh, and six extra base hits too. So I guess that, that might be one of your claim to fame. So give me a scouting report on a young Ron Wotus in professional baseball. Okay, Rez. Well, I'm going to correct you. I was six for 55. Um, with with uh, with twelve hits and six doubles, six so, for twelve and extra base hits. That's yeah, what. I was, yeah. yeah. Okay. Very good. Well, yeah. That that was good for me. Um, honestly, 
uh, as a player, you know, I was a, a shortstop. I came up as a shortstop and uh, things were rolling along pretty good for me. I mean, I got to the big leagues when I was 21 years old, um, you know, going a level a year signing out of high school and I felt good, but then I had arm surgery. I played winter ball, had an injury. It's a long story. I got an injection in my shoulder, ended up, um, you know, hitting a nerve. And then I tore my labrum and had some other arm problems when I, when I played uh, that following year. So once I had the surgery, I lost the ability to play shortstop, but that was my strength and uh, play shortstop. Um, I played them all. I played third. I played second. Uh, when I was in the big leagues, I played mostly short and second, but I also played first. I played right and left field. Uh, one, of, one of my biggest supporters was Tommy Sant, who's no longer with us. And um, he, he passed uh, last year. You know, he took me to the double A club out of A ball uh, and put me in left field because he believed in me. And, you know, I can't tell you how important it is to show confidence in your players and have somebody in your corner because if it wasn't for him, I probably would have never made it to the big league. So, but anyways, I'm going off track here. Utility infield, line drive hitter, gap power, could bunt, move a runner, get him in from third, and then consider myself a heads-up player. Probably what you would expect out of a lot of the coaches in the game today. There you go. And that leads me into my next question is that there's a lot of coaches that kind of had similar careers to maybe what you, you experienced. Cause there's, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of coaches that um, have had a ton of success in the big leagues. Is there anything to that, that, uh, that reputation that coaches get where it's, you know, the, the thing that you hear often is, you know, good players can't be good coaches. A lot of the time, you know, we, we talked about Barry Bonds and Barry Bonds from what I've heard is an excellent hitting coach, but there's discussion about him in in, uh, in Miami where, you know, maybe the work ethic wasn't there, but that's, that's an example of many, but is there, is there a sentiment there among coaches that, you know, maybe, maybe the, uh, the really great players have trouble kind of teaching certain aspects of the game? You know, I don't know if that's accurate or not. Mm -hmm. I believe you mentioned Barry Bonds. He has tremendous things to offer uh, to players. And I love talking to him about hitting some of the things that I relate to players today is because watching him and the things he talked about, example, you know, anticipating the pitch in your zone. And this guy walked 200 times and he was always ready to hit, ready to hit the pitch in his zone. So, so that is, is something. I, I look at the concentration that he had. Uh, but again, I'm getting off track. Um, I, I think everybody has something to offer um, to players. Now, there's another side of coaching. Your availability, they're long hours. you got to be there before everybody. So it's not like playing the commitment to the player, you're, you're there to help them, um, which, which is, is a long day and you have to learn your craft, you know, and be there for the players. So um, I don't know if that enters into some of these other guys not having the, the dedication to, to be the coach that, that uh, you know, everybody expects. Um, but I think everybody just tries to do your, your job the best you can. I think longevity is a key. You see some great coaches in the game like Dave McKay. You know, there's a reason he's still coaching first base after this many years because he's really good at what he does. And I think that's the number one thing, whether you're a great player or not so great player, having the desire to be a co good coach and having a desire to learn your craft and be able to communicate it. See, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you can't communicate it to the player uh, and get the player to understand it and make it part of their game, you know, your knowledge is wasted. So I think 
therein lies a lot of the keys of being a good coach. And you, you were on the coaching staff of three uh, Hall of Fame tier managers with Dusty Baker, Felipe, Felipe Lou, and, and Bruce Bochy. Was there any similarities between all three of them? Because I know they're, they're a little bit different personalities, um, and they're all definitely, I think, worthy of Hall of Fame consideration. Is there any similarities between them, though? Because I know they were all three different eras of Giants baseball. You're right, Riz. I mean, look, uh, you couldn't get more diverse than those three gentlemen, <laughs> yeah. really, when you look at it. But there were similarities. And in, in, the, in the first one, it stands out is they're all extremely uh, competitive people. I mean, they wanted to win baseball games. You don't think you get in that position if you're not like that. I mean, they were all business about baseball. And, and that was they, they didn't care about you know, their own notoriety. They didn't care about any other causes. It was all about winning baseball games and they were all extremely competitive. And I think that's the one thing that I took away. They did it differently. You know, Dusty, Boach, uh, and Felipe, I think we're talking about those three. We're not talking about Cap right now, but they they all did it a little bit different, but they all they all had that that common thread and that was commitment and competitive. Do you remember the most angry Bruce Bochy ever got at you? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I don't know if it was the most angry, but um, uh, yeah, we had our moments. We had our moments. I remember when he was most angry at a television one day and we weren't playing good. This was early in his career uh, with the Giants. And I think it was the first or second year and we weren't very good. But, you know, guys were going out, they were watching TV up until five minutes of the game. And back then, that's how you did it. You wanted the players out for the anthem. You wanted the whole group ready to, uh, you know, play nine innings for three hours. And uh, so one day he called a little meeting and he took he took a baseball bat uh, to one of the televisions. He started off nice and calm, you know, and then it built up before you know it. He, he took this bat and it hit that hit the TV and it went thud. You know, it didn't break because the TV, it doesn't, it doesn't shatter. So he had to hit it like three more times. But um, I saw some anger there. We had our moments, you know, we had our moments with the shift. You know, we were a very close-knit group. We, we could yell at each other. We can get on each other, whether it was, you know, Boach, uh, Rags, Gardy, uh, Flan. Um, we had a good group, Billy Hayes. Um, so we had our moments, but, you know, a lot of it, uh, we, we had some disagreements with the chef because the old school guys didn't believe in it. And, you know, still today, it was an emotional response. You got three, you know, a lefty, you shift it over and a guy hits a weak ground ball to third. Uh, everybody used to lose their mind. So um, we had some we had some rough moments with that in the early going. Yeah. And, and you mentioned that it was a, a tight knit group and, and that coaching staff stayed together, I guess, for the championship years. They stayed together for a long time, and there's a little bit of shifting towards the end. You know, a few guys got reassigned. Now it's not, you know, it's not really together. It's it's a new coaching staff under Gabe Kapler, but you still see those guys. You know, Flannery pops up every now and then, and, you know, Bochi, you still see him from time to time, and there's different guys that you see because the Giants are so good at bringing, you know, those guys back for celebrations of some sort. So it, does it, does it feel like a family atmosphere where you just keep seeing them over and over, you know, your run together has kind of ended a little bit, but you still see them all the time. Well, I'd like to see him a little bit more to be yeah. honest with you. You know, I, I see Boach in spring training quite a bit and we talk on the phone. I don't see rags enough anymore. I saw him in spring training 
uh, Dave Brighetti. Uh, he's helping out a little bit there, but I, I don't see him once in a while. I saw him at San Jose once this year when I went down there. Mark Gardner's down in Fresno. I, I don't see him as much as I want, but we've golfed in the winter. And Flan, of course, saw him on opening day. We're very close. We stay in touch. We did the commercial together, me, saw Flan, that. and Coach. Yeah, that was a lot of fun to do that. And uh, so, yeah, but I'd like, to, I'd like to see the gang more. I met Bam Bam. I haven't seen him in a few years. Billy Hayes pops his head in. So you're right. We, we don't see enough of each other. When you win together and you have that type of success, you'd have nothing but great memories of each other. And um, of course, we were together a long time and went through a lot of battles. So miss those guys. 100%. And did in 2019, when 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 Bochi at, in spring training announced that the 2019 season would be his last, did you kind of treat that as your last as well? Was there a part of you when he made that announcement where it's like, you know, the trend now is, you know, usually when coaches or when managers step down the new manager takes in their entire new staff and you know you've survived three regimes and will I survive a force was, was that ever going through your mind you know maybe I guess treating 2019 season as your last yeah it was honestly I mean um you know I, I wanted to keep I wanted to keep coaching at that point but I, I knew the realization as you just mentioned I was fortunate enough to survive two changes you know from Dusty to Felipe Felipe to Boach but you know we had the same general manager now we have a new guy in charge so I I, I thought very well that I could be gone um, you know as it worked out I had other options uh, I wanted to stay in San Francisco and I told Farham that um, but the bottom line is um, I, I was a little concerned about that and was uh, trying to, you know, uh, I thought about that quite a bit. This could be it in San Francisco more than out of the game, which but I always wanted to remain in San Francisco. So it was it was better sweet. It was a little bit uncomfortable um, at the end of the year, even though I interviewed for the managing job. Um, I still didn't know whether I was going to be back or not. And. Do you, do you maybe, I guess, is that one regret that you wish maybe you would have had as managing a, a big league team? I know you had a few interviews throughout your career. Was that one thing that you would have really, really wished to do and maybe kind of an unfulfilled item on the bucket list? Not at this point in my life. Uh, I'm very comfortable where I'm at. I would say about seven, eight years ago, that's something that I really wanted to do. I came up as a minor league manager. So the early part of my career, I thought like a manager. And then I learned right away that if you're going to be any good in the major leagues, every coach needs to be as good as they can be in their own area and be close with each other. So I never, I never bench coached pretending I was the manager or politicking for that managing job. I just tried to help the manager wherever I could do the job to the best of my ability and fill in all the cracks. So um, you know, honest to God, I have no regrets in this game. I, I believe that it was meant for me to be a giant my whole career. Here I am still working for the Giants, who I love to death, get to do a little bit TV with them and still be involved with the organization. So everything worked out great for me. Uh, but there was a time that, that uh, I would have told you, yes, I was upset that I couldn't manage, but not anymore. And what was that conversation like with when Gabe Kapler got hired and, and he's telling you, hey, you know, I have a brand new coaching staff. A lot of them have coached at the big league level. Some haven't. I need you to kind of be the stabilizing force. What was that conversation like? 
Well, that was great because, um, you know, I talked to Cap uh, before, you know, I uh, was actually signed as a coach to make sure he was comfortable um, with me, et cetera, et cetera. Very similar to what I did when, when uh, Felipe took over and, and when and Boach took over. Um, the conversation was great. Cap was, was a pro from day one. Um, he made me feel really good. He made me feel wanted and needed. And, you know, it was a perfect place in my career. As I told him, I don't have to be the infield coach. Um, I don't need to, to be the guy. I just want to help this organization win. And, you know, so in part, it was perfect because, you know, I wasn't the infield coach. He had Kai uh, was going to do that job. And I was there to help these guys out. And I think it was a perfect fit for me. And I think it was a perfect fit for them as well, um, having the experience that I have and ha have had. And whether it was bench coaching or infield or, or just the whole dynamic worked well. Having a carryover coach, that's one thing that I always wanted when I interviewed for my managing jobs. I always planned on keeping a coach or two that was already in the organization to help me, you know, help me manage the team if I got it. Because they know these guys, you know, inside and out. When you come in new, there's a, you know, getting to know you period. So um, it was a perfect fit. Cap was great. And I was happy to do the role that he asked me to do. Do you see a little bit of yourself in, in Kai Correa? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, very dedicated. He uh, really cares about infield. He's passionate about infield play. I know Kai um, um, has all kinds of videos and stuff online that if you're a young uh, coach or, or player, you want to learn about infield, you can go online and get it from him. So there's similarities there. I, I was very passionate, you know, and he cares. I mean, I was a little headstrong when I was young. You want things to be perfect and you find out real quick that you're at the mercy of your players. You know, your players uh, uh, win and lose games and you can only help so much. And some you can get to, some you can't. Sometimes the patient dies, unfortunately. I hate to say that, but it's the truth. You can't help everybody to the degree that you want to be. And, and I think he has that desire as well. And you had the chance to work with Alyssa Nacken, who is the first full-time female MLB coach. Uh, and I see her pregame and she's doing so much during batting practice. You could see that the players really love having her around and listening to her input. What was it like uh, having her around and uh, watching her kind of break down some barriers? Yeah, it's been fantastic. I mean, Alyssa is a great gal. She really is. I mean, I had coffee with her before we started coaching together, but she has the personality. She has the temperament. She's very intelligent. She played softball. Um, so she gets it. And she's been around the Giants for a while. So she understands the San Francisco Giants. So she's been great. Not, nothing but, you know, praise for Alyssa. Um, we have a great relationship. She makes me smile. Um, I try to make her laugh all the time and I enjoy that part of it. That's that's been fun, just not with her, but with all the coaches, is to try to be a little bit of a life coach and and uh, make everybody smile and laugh because this game this game can be tough when you're not winning baseball games. You know, you're going to take it home with you, and uh, so I chose I choose to go that route now in my in my work. Finally, uh, you know, you're still kind of around the team right now. Uh, I see you hitting fungos all the time. I'll introduce myself the next time I see you. Um, and, uh, you know, you're still around the club. And I even I, I sit on the other side of the press box, but I see you in there, too. So what are you up to these days? I know you're traveling a bunch. Tell me about this new gig with the Giants as special assistant to baseball operations. 
Well, what we came up with is I'm at the majority of home games in uniform. I can't stay in the dugout, obviously. I, I watch them out of uniform, but I, I'm, you know, I'm helping out. I'm still helping the infield guys. I'm, I'm still there with the coaches, giving my opinions, talking to them. I'm not there full time, but I'm there at most of the home games. Um, you know, building relate, continuing relationships with the players. I mean, look, I know a lot of these guys, you know, there's some guys I'm very close with on this team. Uh, I, I'm enjoying being able to talk to them, uh, you know, not being their coach, but being just a, a, an ex-coach and somebody that cares about them and giving them my two cents where need be. So that's what I'm doing at the major league club. Um, watch it on you. If I go back in with the coaches and uh, try to get them to have a glass of wine and, and, and relax a little bit. And when I'm not in, in, in San Francisco, when the team's on the road, uh, I've committed to a certain number of games in San Jose and in Sacramento. I thought it would be good for me to go to Sacramento and help be a liaison between the major leagues and, and, and AAA and, you know, work with guys in AAA, which has been fun. I get to teach again. I get to grab guys like David VR and the other infielders up there and actually, you know, work with them in the manner that I like to. And the same thing in San Jose, we got some couple infielders down there. Uh, Arteaga is a nice looking shortstop. I've been able to work with him and, and give him some advice. So that's the majority of it. And then I try to take some time off. As my wife, Lori said, I went from working all the time to working full time with overtime. And that's about right. So I'm staying busy, that's for sure. But I love working with players. Your adrenaline level probably goes through the roof when, when the beer batter steps up in San Jose. I mean, <laughs> that, that, it's the biggest thrill. It really is. I think that's one of the best promotions. And, and that's the cool thing about minor league baseball. So I'm glad that, uh, glad that you're able to do that. And you're able to, I, I hear you all the time still with Marty Lurie. That's kind of how I, uh, I grew up listening to your segment with, uh, with Marty. And it's always a, a treat listening to the professor as he says it. So, <laughs> well, th thank you. You know, two things. You know, it's been great going back to San Jose and that beer batter is great. It looks like Cousin Eddie. Remember the movie Christmas Vacation, Cousin Eddie? Yeah, of course. Just like him. You know, here comes the beer batter. He's yelling out and uh, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying that. And of course, Marty Lurie, um, th th this guy, this guy should be in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. We've had a relationship for a long, long time. I love his style. I love his knowledge, his history. And it's I, it's been real fun being on his radio show and I, I owe him a lot for having me on there and uh, I appreciate you listening to that. Yeah. That's the first time I ever heard the word mosaic. So I was like, mosaic, <laughs> what is that? And then, you know, of course, uh, Marty Lurie, he's no artist, but he, he knows what a good mosaic is when he sees one. <laughs> so <laughs> right. got to give it to Marty anyways. Well, I appreciate you coming on. This was a blast and uh, definitely uh, more conversations to come. Riz, I look forward to meeting you and thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And of course, you guys could follow uh, Mr. Ron Wotus on Twitter. His handle is at rwotus and uh, go, check, go, go check that out. Go check out the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at RizzoCast and then go subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts uh, we are on. Thank you guys for listening and have a great day.